Good morning. That song we sung, I don't know if you realize it, some of you may have and may have recognized it from Psalm 121. It's the second of the Psalm of Ascents. Israelites, it's believed, would sing these songs as they made their way to Jerusalem. And they would look up into the mountains. The mountains are actually a place of danger. It's where the flash floods would come from. It's where the narrow passes would hide those who would want to do harm to travelers. And so as they would travel, usually in groups, they would sing these songs and continually remind themselves in the pressing, the very real dangers of life, where does their help come from? And it's wonderful to be able to sing that song and remind ourselves that in the daily struggles we have and the different ailments, the sicknesses that afflict us, the uh, persecutions we feel, the great persecutions that other believers throughout the world feel that nothing has changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our help is still comes from the Lord. Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, maybe stick a finger in Titus 1 as we continue our study this morning with regard to the church and her leaders. Began this at the beginning of the year as we wanted to pause and very practically as we consider adding to the leadership here at Canton Bible, but also as a somewhat young church to recenter, refocus, make sure that we have a right thinking and approach to leadership in the church. These characters, these qualities aren't just when you consider a new leader, it's a continual thing that the church is responsible to do, to continually measure and hold their leaders up to the standard of Scripture to ensure that their leaders continue to shepherd according to Scripture. Alexander Strauch, in his work, Biblical Eldership, relates the manner in which some churches go about choosing their leaders. He relates one example where a pastor once a year would invite all the members to assemble in the church basement after a Sunday evening service to select and elect their leaders. After everyone gathered in front of a blackboard, you can tell this is dated a little bit, the chairman of the deacons would ask for nominations. Several names would be suggested. They'd be quickly voted on. The new leaderships are then installed, and the pastor closes the meeting in prayer. The entire process takes less than half an hour. There's no consideration of scriptural qualifications, at least not in any real depth. There's no prayer. There's no time to fully examine the nominated persons or those being considered for leadership. Compare that, if you will, to the process, the careful process of Paul and Barnabas and the churches. Paul and Barnabas, who were instrumental in planning many of the early churches, first off, spent a great deal of time with the churches, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years, often returning to visit those same churches, writing letters as we have so many of the epistles. And after they had spent some time with them, they went about the establishing of leaders, either asking the churches themselves to do it or they themselves helping in that process or in the case of Timothy and Titus, having one of their emissaries help with that. In Acts 14.23, we get just really a snapshot into the seriousness with which Paul and Barnabas considered the process of putting leaders in place, putting shepherds in place over the church. In Acts 14.23, we read, they appointed elders for them in every, church, in every church, having prayed 
with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. If there was time for fasting, that means there was time to consider, time to think about, time to pray for these men. For Paul and Barnabas and the early church, it was a solemn task, one that was not to be entered into lightly. So they went before the Lord in prayer, not relying on their own insight and their own wisdom. And as we've seen in our study over the past few weeks, little changed later in Paul's ministry when he was writing to Timothy in Ephesus or Titus in Crete. In those two letters, Paul instructs them in the type of persons that God desires to lead and shepherd his church. And you're familiar with this list. If you've got it in front of you, you may have already read it again this morning. It's not a list of accomplishments. It's not built on personal charisma or on business or worldly acumen. It's not based on intelligence. It's not even based solely on one's theological teaching or preaching ability. Rather, the leader and shepherd of the church sets the example in displaying character qualities that are expected of all believers, with the important qualification of also being able to teach and instruct and rebuke, defend the true and right teaching and doctrine of Jesus Christ. This morning we return to Paul's instructions as we continue to consider the type of shepherds God wants over the church. And as we consider these qualifications this morning, I want us to be praying that God would raise up these type of men, not only here at Canton Bible, certainly here, but also in churches all over the world. We are not the only church. There are many other churches, many other believers, many other godly persons locally and in the world at large, and we want to pray that God would raise up these type of persons to lead the church. So join me in praying as we enter into this study again this morning. Father, we do come before you. We lift our eyes to you. And Father, by that we mean we look to you, we turn to you, we acknowledge that you are our sole source of help in time of need. Father, our times of need present themselves in so many various ways. It may be health, it may be physical safety, it may be in establishing leaders in the church and choosing rightly and carefully. And it's for that we pray this morning, not just for this church, but also for churches in our community, in our nation, and in the world, that you would raise up men who honor you, who lead, who set the example in godly living, whose lives really can be a pattern to follow as they pursue you, who guard the truth entrusted, the word that's been entrusted and handed down faithfully through so many generations. Would we be faithful to that word this morning? Would we be faithful in our observing and interpreting and applying it in our lives? And to this church, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, so far, the eight qualities or characteristics of a leader that we have looked at out of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 have been expressed in the positive. You know, they have a desire They're the husband of one wife, and the list goes on. We get to verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we notice a little bit of a shift as we consider what a shepherd should look like. And the shift is seen 
by observing characteristics that should not be found in a leader of the church. So verse 3 opens with those, the first of which is translated, not addicted to wine. Now I want to note here, the emphasis is not on the addicted to, or as some of your translations may read, it's drunkard, but rather it is the effect of being addicted to wine. It is that drunken state. Because the idea of being addicted to something, that's already been addressed in the description of temperate. A temperate man or woman is one who participates in things in moderation. It's part of being self-controlled, that is, not controlled by something else. It's able to say yes or no to something, whether alcohol, drugs, food, entertainment, or just about anything else in this life. That's a mark of temperance. But here the camera zooms in on alcohol or wine, and it's called out because of the potential it has, the effect it has, for dulling the senses and the mind. And notice, though, this is not a prohibition of wine or alcohol. It's a warning against excess. And again, the emphasis is on the effect that is brought, not the source. It's not the wine that is evil. It's not wine that's the issue, but it's the effect of overindulgence. And that becomes important because there is more than one thing in this life that can dull the senses. There's more than one thing in this life that can be an overindulgence. Jerome, a pastor and church leader in the fourth century, commented on this passage about church leaders saying, whatever intoxicates and disturbs the balance of the mind, avoid as you would wine. He goes on to say, I, I do not say that we are to condemn what is a creature of God. That is, if God has created it, enjoy it. I only require that drinkers should observe that limit which their age, their health, or their constitution requires. In other words, it is the effects of drunkenness that are to be avoided. Solomon writes in Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Paul, on his part, equates drunkenness with what is called dissipation, or we might translate it as debauchery in Ephesians 5, verse 18. He writes, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And that term dissipation, that debauchery that is equated with drunkenness is used of shamelessness. It's recklessness in living. It's wasteful living. It's wasting your time. It's wasting your life. It's of the excess of sensual or worldly pleasures. And even the world recognizes the negative and destructive effects of this type of living, of being given to excess, of dulling the senses, whether through drunkenness or some other artificial stimulant. Aristotle wrote, people with this vice are prodigals who waste their substance and are in the path of ruination of their own lives. There's much more that could be said of the dangers of alcohol, drugs, substances that dull the senses. And I think we can all agree that this is certainly unwise, it certainly has dangers, but why specifically is the dulling of the mind and the senses something that should not be found in a follower of Jesus Christ? Specifically, a leader or shepherd of the church. 
Well, the answer is that leaders are called to teach. They're called to instruct. They're called to counsel. They're called to guide. They are to protect. And if they're characterized as those who have dulled senses, they will not be able to function ably in this requirement. I remember years ago, I took a driver's ed. I remember we had to put on these goggles that simulated the perception of being drunk. I've never been drunk, so I don't know how accurate they were, but I do know that I couldn't walk a straight line, I couldn't catch a ball, and there were several other things I failed at being able to do. What became immediately apparent is even the most basic tasks become extremely difficult, if not impossible. And a church leader, Christians as a whole, must avoid any habit, any pattern of life that makes them unable to perform the tasks of being a Christian, or for the leader, the tasks of being a shepherd. But it goes even deeper. You see, there's an important reason for not habitually dulling the senses. I believe it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who noted that the misery of this age is seen in its desire for artificial stimulants. This world seeks to drown out and take take the edge off the difficulty and the trials of this world by excess in alcohol, drugs, food, and entertainment, and probably a few other things. But as believers, we are to take a different approach, and that's to cast our burdens on the Lord, remembering that He cares for us. We're to turn in prayer and thanksgiving to the Savior of our souls. You see, the futility of this life and this world is supposed to direct our thoughts to eternity. And so when we dull that pain, when we artificially cover it up, we rob ourselves of the reminder of eternity. We rob ourselves of the opportunity to pray to the Lord. We rob ourselves of the opportunity to watch Him work. We stunt our growth and our sanctification. So then Paul says, as you evaluate your church leaders, ask, Do they have a pattern or habit of doling their senses? Do they try to artificially deal with trials and difficulties of life? Do they regularly impair their physical and spiritual faculties so they are not ready to teach, to exhort, and to protect the people of God? He moves quickly to the next quality, again expressed in the negative. Not pugnacious. It's a word I haven't used recently. And again, if you know the meaning of the word, you may think, well, this is rather obvious. You don't want a leader of the church who likes to fight, who looks for a fight, who is literally a striker, one who strikes out at others. And we can all agree pretty quickly that one who is regularly picking fights on the street, who frequently sports bruised knuckles and a black eye, is probably not qualified to lead the church. But like alcohol, the concern and requirement goes much deeper. It's more than just physical violence and fighting that are in view. Perhaps the greatest amount of fighting and bullying that goes on today, especially in the advent of social media, is verbal, not physical. We need to be asking, how does the leader or potential leader speak to their children to their wives, to their coworkers, to their friends, to their neighbors? Do they speak gently? 
Or do they strike out with their words? How do they speak to or about persons who have tried to hurt them? And by the way, unless you think it gets too personal, it is not out of place at all for you to ask wives and children how the husbands and fathers are doing in this area. That's part of accountability. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to be asking of the wives and the children of your leaders. How do they speak to them when no one else is watching? Once again, it's not a matter of perfection, but what is the normal pattern of speech? And if they ever do speak harshly, are they quick to repent? You see, words are one of the most dangerous weapons that we wield. And how we speak to persons and about persons matters a great deal. It's not just a matter also of speaking harshly. We can lash out with soft-sounding words, can't we? In fact, we are particularly good at this in the South. There is a reason that everyone visiting us is skeptical of the term, bless your heart. We are good at using smooth-sounding words to conceal a cutting blade. We are masters at gossiping and slander that is couched in feigned humility and care. We cleverly strike when the back is turned. And leaders of the church must be those who are not accused of striking out physically or verbally. Not accused of seeking to do harm in others, no matter how soft those words may sound on the surface. And not only is it important not to strike out physically or verbally, the shepherds should also not be looking for a fight. They should not be regularly embroiled in disputes and arguments. Unfortunately, social media has made it far too easy for those with a polemical or argumentative nature to pick a fight. Sadly, I know many pastors whose words on social media are crafted to do exactly that, pick a fight and attack. And their words reveal that they are more interested in destroying their opponent than they are in winning them through loving and kind dialogue. And it's often couched, you'll notice this, in language of protection. Someone who likes to pick fights will say they're, they're busy protecting the sheep or rooting out false teachers. The problem is that it's rarely a false teacher in their midst that they found. Instead, what they're doing is they're going out hunting. They're not guarding, they're not shepherding. Shepherds are guards, they're not hunters. There is a time and a place for defending the truth and doing it strongly. And a pastor or shepherd must clearly call out falsehood, especially when it is or will affect their sheep. But they must, not, they must be careful not to be distracted in tilting at windmills to the neglect of shepherding those who are in their midst. Most of the sheep are in far more danger of discouragement, of depression, of not loving their wives, of not loving their husbands, struggling with raising their children, trying to manage their time, honoring parents, integrity in the workplace or school, much more than they are in danger of some random pastor or theologian's eschatological system. And so shepherd must know their sheep, not be one that strikes out physically or verbally, and who does not go out looking for a fight, even a theological one. 
And this all proceeds very naturally to Paul's next two requirements for a shepherd. And here he turns back to the positive. First, that they are gentle. Now, gentle does not mean a pushover. It's often misunderstood. Certainly not when it comes to truth, to integrity, to principles. But this gentle person is one who readily gives way and yields to others out of love and preference. It's one who knows how to speak truth calmly and lovingly, to speak to the sheep so that they do not run away but draw near, even in those hard times of rebuke. It's a combination of words, tone of voice, demeanor, and intention that all come to play in this gentleness. You can say a very mean thing in a soft tone of voice. That's not gentleness. In fact, as we noted ago, that's a verbal weapon of one who is pugnacious and likes to strike out. Gentleness is also imbued with patience. It does not expect perfection out of someone. It does not expect immediate change. It looks to encourage what change and growth and character it may observe. It's someone who very gently prods along toward more. It's the shepherd who walks next to or just in front of the sheep. Growing up, I loved border collies. And I loved watching them herd sheep. But that's not a shepherd. Border collies drive the sheep. They nip at their heels. They're impatient with them. They want to get the job done. And as much as I love those dogs, that's not what shepherds are called to be. One of the greatest pictures I ever saw was a video that was taken of this Aramaic shepherd. And he was walking along and he sings and he talks to the sheep. And they just follow him right at his heels as he leads them along. Because they want to be near him. There's a gentleness about him. There's a serenity about him. There's safety in him. That's what the shepherd is to look like. It's one who's patient and understands that people change slowly. At least that's more often than not. It does not respond in kind when hurt or insulted. But gentleness looks for how or where the accusation, however undeserved, may have even had an amount of truth. And then resolves to work on that thing no matter how incorrect or unjust the rest of the accusation may appear. Paul writes to all believers in Philippians 4, 5, saying, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. It is in every way the opposite of pugnacious. Gentleness is also closely joined to that next character trait that Paul describes of a shepherd. Peaceable. James Notes in James 3.17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. We're reminded yet again as we see James writing to the church at large that these qualities not only belong to leaders and shepherds in the church, but to all disciples of Jesus Christ. Leaders and shepherds, are called to be the examples before the church of what these abstract concepts look like in action. In other words, we're given these abstract rules, this fruit of the Spirit. What does it look like? Well, God in His mercy and His grace and His understanding that we like examples gives leaders. 
Leaders who are to model it, who are to show it. That's what Jesus himself did to his disciples. So leaders are to take these abstract concepts and make them concrete as they apply them in this life. Compared to the one who fights over doctrine, this peaceable person looks to heal rifts caused by bitter argument. It does not describe someone who capitulates or has no firm conviction. Again, this is not someone who overlooks the truth or overlooks sin or will not confront sin or who will not participate in a good, healthy, wholesome debate. But at the same time, it's someone who is not looking to engage in a manner that would fracture relationships and the church. Instead, they seek to engage, even when they disagree, in a way that would bring peace and heal divisions caused by disagreement. And if you're reading this list of qualities in 1 Timothy 3, you notice that Paul now pivots at the end of verse 3. And he pivots to what the affections of a pastor or a shepherd should be. And he does that by saying they should be free from the love, the affection for money or wealth. In Titus, he states it similarly, saying, not fond of sordid gain in Titus 1.7. And so the question to leaders becomes, and really the question to all of us, where do your affections lie? Now, not being one who pursues sordid or dishonest gain, that makes sense. Money is not earned or taken through sinful means or thievery would disqualify a shepherd, a leader of the church. It would get just about any of us thrown in prison. I mean, it's so obvious that perhaps it feels a bit out of place. But consider again that it goes much deeper. It does not have to be outright theft. It could be loose spending of the church's resources for your own comfort. It may be taking advantage of the resources of others for personal gain. All of this would fall into that category. And while I think there are a few pastors and leaders who set out for this purpose, there are some. There are some who want to what we call fleece the sheep. They want to make their living and their livelihood, and not just a small livelihood, but a big livelihood off of them. But I don't think most set out with this intention. But sadly, there are churches who are stingy don't work to ensure their leaders are cared for, at least as much as it's within their power. They neglect those ministering to them. And when this happens, they increase the temptation for leaders to sin or become preoccupied with finances. And I'm thankful that the attitude of this church is to look after and care for those who lead them. But there's another side. And that is that some leaders will become preoccupied with money. They may not even have a lot, but they become preoccupied with it, consumed in talking about it. They love to talk about money or finances or stocks or investments. And again, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, nothing wrong with discussing them at times, but they should not be the dominating topic of conversation from a leader or potential shepherd. A leader or shepherd knows they only have so much time on this earth. They know they only have so much time to give. They know the Lord has only given them a certain fixed amount of time in this life, and so they want to make the most of that time. They really want to put into practice what Paul calls for in Ephesians 5, where he says, redeem, that is, make the most of the time because the days are evil. And he puts that in practice with what he talks about, what he wants to focus on, 
how he spends his time. And so a leader, a potential shepherd, should hardly be known as one who talks frequently about money. They certainly should not have an affection for money, a love for money that causes them to be preoccupied with it. Paul says at the end of 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. One pastor noted, the love of money is dangerous and destructive of both self and community. Like Adam and Eve's grasping after the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, a person's selfish amassing of material possessions suggests that life is no longer being accepted, thankfully, from the hand of God. Jesus teaches in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But it gets even more specific where he says just a couple of verses later, no one, in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so the leader, the shepherd of the church, should not want be one who's preoccupied with those things, consumed by those things. Now, as we've done in previous weeks, I want to pause here and broaden the application as we look not only to the expectation we have of believers, but what do these things mean for each of us? We repeat ourselves, but it bears repeating. Leaders are to be examples in each of these things, but we are all to follow in that example. Many of these qualifications, like we've already noted, are just concrete examples of how to live out the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that each of us must be doing. Godly living is not just for leaders or those aspiring to leadership. It is for all believers. We touched on this last week. If we really believe in the sainthood, the priesthood of all believers, as 1 Peter describes, then we are all called to godly living. In fact, Peter goes on to say, be holy as I am holy, quoting directly out of Leviticus 19, verse 2. We're all to be pursuing this holiness. And God, in his grace and mercy, has given persons who help set that example and that pattern faithfully before us. We do not outsource studying God's word, loving our husbands and wives, being kind and gentle only to leaders. So lest we become too comfortable, let's ask a few hard questions about each of these qualities this morning. How are you doing with the difficulties of this world? Do you try to take the edge off by regularly dulling your senses? And again, it can be more than, there's many different ways you can do this. Certainly there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's substances. There's also that great God of entertainment. As one author put it, we are entertaining ourselves to death. Remember that a little bit of pain is good. In fact, we discussed this fact in our men's Bible study this week. In the past, lepers often had severe burns, scratches, sometimes even missing fingers or toes or stubbed noses or ears. And it's not because leprosy causes these things to fall off, but rather leprosy attacks the nervous system. It doles the senses. It deadens you from to feeling any pain so that you more easily hurt yourself. 
Slam the car door and there goes a finger. When we dull ourselves to the pain of this life, we do incredible damage to ourselves and to our lives. And our lives will bear the marks of this damage. So we don't turn to alcohol, to drugs, to food or entertainment to drown out the pain of this life. Now, we're also not saying this life isn't painful. It is. It very much is. But we also know the reason for this, don't we? Because all the way back to Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve, Adam specifically, taking of the fruit of the garden from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eating of it, and plunging this world into darkness and sin. And all of the effects that come with it. So that all of creation, as Paul writes in Romans 8, is groaning and uttering the pains of childbirth, longing for redemption. But we have a Lord who gives hope and who gives a future. And that's where we turn. This pain allows us to lift our eyes and to consider eternity. Now it's possible you are here this morning without that hope. If you have not cried out to the Lord for help, if you are tired of struggling in, in this painful world alone, if you would like to understand the hope of eternity, please come find me. Find one of the other persons you may have met this morning when you came in. Grab somebody next to you. You're not inconveniencing them. We would love to tell you how you can have a joy that surpasses all understanding. And it begins by understanding your sin. It begins by confessing and repenting of your sin, of your self-reliance, and acknowledging your great, deep, spiritual poverty and need and turning and crying out to the Lord for deliverance. So please, if you have never done that, find me this morning. And what about not being pugnacious? How many of you strike out with your words or your actions? And children, I know this can be especially hard. When a brother or sister does something you don't like or maybe a friend, do you respond gently? Or do you lash out with your words or try to find some way to hurt them and make them feel it? Are you someone who likes to pick on others, always wanting to get a reaction out of them? When I think of this, I think of a yellow jacket at a picnic. All it seems to be doing is trying to get a reaction and aggravate you. Instead, be gentle and peaceable. If you were to ask your husband, your wife, maybe a brother or a sister or a friend, if you are a gentle person, what would they say? If they would not say you're a gentle person, what needs to change? Is it how you speak? Is it how you act? Is it your impatience with others? And then what steps can you take to be more gentle? You need to be proactive in this process. It is possible that in time it will happen, but it will often be very painful to get there if you don't work on it yourself. It will come through very painful circumstances that humble you. And I want you to avoid that pain, but it takes hard work. And what about when it comes to money or resources or wealth? One of, if not the greatest sources of conflict in this world and in marriage is money and finances. 
And I think there's a lot of people who, if you ask them, would say, no, I, I don't love money. I'm not Scrooge sitting there counting my coins every day. But then you start talking to them, and you find out they love stuff. They love comfort. They love a nice car. They love new clothes. They love people noticing them. They love going on vacations. You see, it's not just money for the sake of money that's the problem. It's wanting of more stuff. It's the wanting of comfort. It's the lack of contentment. Spending money on those things in and of themselves is not wrong. I'm not asking you all to stop taking vacations. That's not at all what I'm saying. Having new things is not wrong. But does it consume you? Can you say no to those things? Does the pursuit of money and the things you want, that you want to buy with money, prevent you from serving God? Does it get in the way of you loving others? Does it get in the way of you serving the church? That's when it's a problem. Again, turn to a spouse, to a friend, someone that will give you the honest truth and ask them, do I love stuff too much? Remember the words of Christ. You cannot serve both God and wealth. And likewise, where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. And compared to heaven, the greatest treasure on this earth is nothing more than worthless fool's gold. Compared to the kingdom of heaven, everything here is a sandcastle. Well, these qualities we've looked at this morning should be found in the lives of all Christians. We must be growing in them. We're not off the hook just because we read them in a list of qualifications for leaders. We can go to so many places in Scripture where they're expounded and instructed to all believers. But that said, it is our leaders who must be setting the example in each of these areas. Not should, but must. So as you are evaluating future elders and leaders and shepherds, or current ones, please continue to ask, is the character, the pattern of life, one I can follow? Not because they are perfect, but because they are setting the example of what it looks like to grow in sanctification in each of these areas. And are they demonstrating repentance when they fail, showing what that looks like? This is the standard evaluation. This is what you should be praying for from each of your leaders. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders this morning. Father, they are very pointed in the personal application they bring. Lord, I pray specifically for myself and for those of us here this morning that we would be known as gentle people, peaceable people, not those who are pugnacious, looking for a fight, that our service and our love be one of devotion to you, not to the things of this earth, that we store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Father, we pray once again for the leaders of this church and the leaders of this community and the churches of this community and churches in this nation and churches in the world that you would raise up men who live out these qualities. Within the churches, you would start raising up Numerous persons who lead and set a pattern to follow as they seek to honor you and to follow you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.